from Washington. This is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, April 23rd. This is Tony Prado. You're listening to the Macrocast uh, coming to you from New York City. We got uh, John Fagan, Brendan Walsh in the D.C. area. Uh, guys, you guys are both uh, both there. Indeed, yeah, in the D.C. spring as the cherry blossoms fall all around us. <laughs> and we're re- super excited to have uh, the great Megan Green uh, with us. Uh, Megan, you've read her in, uh, in the FT. You've seen her on you know, Bloomberg and CNBC commenting on macro issues. My favorite, uh, one of my favorite economists. Uh, who I love to talk to and, and a friend. And, uh, uh, and, she's, and she's at Harvard doing research. She's a senior, a senior fellow uh, doing research on, uh, on income inequality. Uh, it's just one of the, I think, uh, defining uh, economic research issues of our times and not just to research it, but uh, what to do about it. Megan, we're so excited that you're here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and you're in Boston. You are, you are in Boston right now. You're- yep, sitting we're in Boston. We're gonna. We want to. We want to jump in talking about uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Larry Summers, um, who was in the news yet again this week. And um, I, I love Larry. Larry's a you know, Larry's a chair of my board at the uh, Center for Global Development. So I get a lot. I get to see Larry quite a bit. Um, and uh, but he has made himself a controversial figure again uh, with his remarks at the Council on Foreign Relations. Raising the, 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 the alarm bells again on uh, on this question as to whether, um, you know, whether we're fueling this economy too much and uh, and the concern that it may, you know, it may spark in, uh, inflation. He had, in, in a typical Larry fashion, he had colorful ways of, uh, of uh, uh, describing it. I think he says, you know, something to the effect that in the old days, you know, old way with, with uh, the, the, the Fed, um, you know, the Fed's job was to uh, take away the punch bowl from the party. And uh, Larry said something to the effect of now we're going to wait until, you know, everyone's rip roaring drunk uh, before we uh, before we think about taking away the punch bowl. Yeah. What's your take on this? I mean, there, we got we got we got it on all sides. I mean, Larry, uh, Olivia Blanchard. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, have have both in their own ways made uh, you know made this point. How do you see it, Megan? Yeah, so I would take a step back and say that I think this battle between Larry and Olivier on the one side and the Biden administration on the other, who are going big for sure, mm-hmm. is pretty emblematic of a huge battle that's happening in macroeconomics right now, and it's been going on for decades. To be fair, so this this has probably been a debate we've been having in macro for 40 years, but it's really gotten steam since the global financial crisis when economists realized we really missed the boat on that one. And so we're probably missing a trick somewhere. Um, Few economists actually predicted the global financial crisis. The recovery was pretty weak. We, We didn't really get that either. So there's been a lot of soul searching among macroeconomists. And I'd say that that macroeconomists kind of split into two camps. Now the old school macroeconomists who believe in traditional GGSE models where we have a single equilibrium and it's a bit like the economy is a cork uh, and you can submerge that cork underwater if you apply pressure. But if you get everything out of the economy's way, it's just going to float up to that natural equilibrium to the top of the water every time. 
Um, so that's the old school traditional view that I think Larry and Olivier are signing up to. And then there's this new heterodox view that to be honest, most of us economists are adopting from other sciences. So economics is the only science that still believes in a single equilibrium. Every other science has figured this out, that there are multiple equilibria and you can actually switch from one equilibrium to another. Sometimes you can switch up, which is great. And that's the goal. Sometimes you can switch down, which is really bad. And that's kind of the, the view of economics that the Biden administration is signing up to. So I think it's really interesting. We've been having this theoretical theoretical debate in economics for decades and with real furor in the past 10 years, I'd say, but all of a sudden we have this real life example where Larry and Olivier Blanchard are saying, look, you have an output gap and that's the difference between potential growth and where growth is. And potential growth is really the equilibrium. And we need to come up with a fiscal stimulus package to fill the hole perfectly considering multipliers, that's what fiscal policy should be doing. We should be trying to get back to the equilibrium. And I think the Biden folks instead are saying, you know what, forget about the output gap and our single equilibrium. We're gonna use this to jump up to an entirely different equilibrium, a better one. We're gonna embrace this opportunity. We're gonna go really big, we're gonna spend a lot and we're not gonna worry about all of the traditional things you would worry about if you're really concerned about the output gap like inflation. I, I fall on the, on the latter side. I think that there are multiple equilibria and we can jump to a new one. I'm not particularly worried about inflation for a whole bunch of reasons. It's been really hard to generate. We live in a globalized world. So if you're taking your stimulus check and paying for a personal trainer in your neighborhood, that might be inflationary. If you're taking it and buying a Peloton from Taiwan, that's gonna leak out of the economy. And our imports of goods in the US are at record highs. So that suggests a lot of this is gonna leak out. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm not particularly worried about that. Also, it's really hard for the US to have sustained massive inflation while nobody else is really experiencing any inflation at all. It just means we'll be importing disinflationary forces. It's really, it will be really hard for the Fed to tighten policy when everyone else has policy really loose. It could, it could happen for a period, but it's really hard to sustain, so. That's essentially what the Fed's saying, right? I mean, that, that, that in fact, you should expect to see it for a little, a little while, but not, not because of, not, I mean, but mostly because of uh, uh, pent up demand and supply chain forces, right? Yeah, so it is partly because of pent up demand, I think. We will see inflation there, or, or higher inflation. There's no doubt about it. Part of it is a weird statistical quirk because we shut down the economy a year ago. And so compared to that, inflation no. will be higher. Part of it is that there will be pent up demand that gets released, all these shop opportunities we haven't had while we've been locked down. Um, you're talking about buying flights. I'm talking about buying flights. Prices will probably go up. Um, but at the same time, how long will that last? I mean, that could be a one-off off the back of all these stimulus measures, but will that be sustained in the long term? That looks less likely. And, and that's what the Fed is betting on. You see it in their own forecasts for inflation and also for their rate path. You also see it in the markets forecast. So if you look at market-based inflation expectations, five years out, investors think inflation will go up, but 10 years out, they actually think it'll be around 2%, which is roughly what the Fed is looking for. So investors aren't really baking uh, sustained accelerated inflation into their forecast either. Yeah, I was going to ask John about his, uh, his thoughts on what, he, you know, what he's seeing on those, on those market signals also, but it, I do think it's pretty clear that Look, if, I mean, if that's the if that's the measure of uh, you know, if, especially a Fed credibility, right? That's a pretty good measure, right? So so far in uh, first quarter 
earnings, there's been a lot of commentary around supply chains and price pressures, but it's been very interesting. Well, a lot of companies are seeing price pressures. It goes back to what Megan was saying. It, it's not from a macroeconomic reality. It's because of, of supply chain constraints, whether it's lumber, whether it's uh, semiconductors, but also interesting, uh, they're having a very hard time hiring people. So they're having to pay up. And a lot of that has to do with the, the expanded stimulus checks. A lot of, uh, you know, kind of, if you're making minimum wage, you'd rather just kind of ride out the summer not working uh, and, and collecting the, uh, the pandemic assistance uh, uh, checks. Uh, so that's also, we know that rolls off in September. So all of these price pressures are real, but they're also, I guess, hopefully transitory. Yeah, and as Megan said, the break-evens, uh, 10-year tips break-evens, even five-year tips break-evens are not at levels that are in outright defiance of the Fed. They have said, yeah. Fed officials have said again and again, that going up to the mid 2%, as long as they don't have in their models this continuing up, you know, substantially further, even two points, some officials have said 2.5 in that kind of context is fine. These are not at ranges that are really flashing red for Fed officials. And they've calmed down. I think trend is important. Obviously, everyone in markets does. And uh, we've seen these break-evens flatten out over the last month, over the last few weeks. And this, importantly, flattening out of break-evens is coming alongside, you know, interest, basically interest rates, the Treasury yield curve settling back down. Oil prices are in a flat range. The dollar has steadied. It's off of its uh, multi-year lows. The gold prices have been in a downtrend. Uh, they're chopping sideways now. The kind of classic market signifiers of inflation concerns. Megan's totally right. They're they're just not there right now. They're expressing an you know a, a reflationary kind of dynamic, but it is different. And I think it's interesting. One thing we've noted, you know, when the PPI, the producer price inflation uh, index, inflation data came out, and it was way higher than everybody expected. What did the market do? Yeah, the dollar rallied. Tips break evens went down. Uh, it was the market wasn't reacting to inflation. The market was reacting to what they think the Fed is going to do in reaction to inflation. And they still think that the Fed is, you know, is probably going to be be ultimately very judicious in how they control. Yeah, but that's, um, a great, that, that's a great point, though, because look, I mean, this is a question I could ask, ask, ask uh, you know, all three of you this. Right. If the market is saying we think the, the Fed is going to squelch inflation and the Fed is saying we are not going to squelch inflation. <laughs> the Fed is trying to tell them over and over and over again, we don't, we're, don't be worried about inflation in the near term. We're not going to be worried about inflation in the near term. You should expect to see inflation. We have just changed to this new uh, regime of uh you know, of uh, average inflation uh, above the 2% target, and we're going to sustain it. We've all told you that everyone who's come out and given a speech repeatedly has said this, and you're still not getting it. Otherwise, you'd be pricing in inflation. Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking about what the Fed should do. And the Fed is saying, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're not going to worry about inflation. We consider it fairly transitory. But at the end of the day, if we get to the end of this year, and inflation is two and a half percent, let's say, and unemployment is four and a half percent. We should hide. I'm, 
I'm not sure you, you could find an economist out there who would argue that in that environment, the appropriate policy rate is zero percent. So the That's Fed is saying we're going to we're not going to worry about this. But actually, when push comes to shove, they might. I think that's a valid concern on, on the part of investors. Yeah, but Megan, let me ask you then, though. Like, so to, but to do all, I mean, I mean you've, you're you're in that group of economists. So like, but so you would not be saying steady as she goes. Like, this is what we want, and we want more of this. Would you be saying steady, keep going, look through this, look through this? Two two and a half percent isn't enough, and in fact, it's not enough even by your own standard of um, uh, uh, on on your on, on inflation averaging. Yeah. So if you're only considering the inflation side of their mandate, then yeah, I think they should just stay put where they are and not worry about inflation. But that's not the only piece of their mandate, right? You also have this unemployment piece, which actually it looks like they should be coming closer to hitting than they have in ages um, as well. But on top of that, you have this underlying mandate, which is financial stability. And that's the piece where I would be worried. Um, And I know a number of Fed officials are, Rob Kaplan's come out a number of times. He's a markets guy saying, I'm really worried about financial stability. And I think that's a valid concern. Yeah. Um, One of the things, I mean, a lot of the the analysis, a lot of the, like the sort of uh, cocktail napkin analysis so I, I think Joe Gagnon, who I, I shouldn't accuse of doing cocktail napkin analysis. He could do real analysis, right? But sort of the talk about Larry's talk about this, about, you know, uh, you know, 13% plus GD, of GDP on it. But, but the, the spend on this actually is going to be a lot slower than the way I think we've, we've sort of been talking about it. Right? It is multi-year spending. Even if, you fa- even if you're factoring infrastructure, even this Jobs Act is, um, is more multi-year than I think people are accounting for. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to Larry, um, I I don't think he's worried about the Build Back Better piece of the stimulus. It's the ARP that he's worried about. And most of the ARP is deployed in the first half of this year. So that is pretty upfront, all at one time spending. And that's the, I mean, if you look at the size of that alone, it's about five times the size of the output gap. So if you learned economics 50 years ago, you know, you are going to have your hair on fire and be, you know, raising alarm bells that we're going to overheat the economy. I think that's that's right. If you believe in output gaps and the idea that we have this single equilibrium that we're always going to revert to, um, which I clearly don't. Um, but I think that's the concern. The stuff in Build Back Better, actually, Larry's been arguing for for a very long time. I mean, he and other economists have been saying whether you think that we've had low growth because of a supply problem or a demand problem, it doesn't really matter. There's one solution to all of it, and that's you know public investment, which we, we've had a massive dearth of for ages. And the Build Back Better stuff really does get at productive public investment. And so I think if you asked Larry, and I haven't, to be fair, he would say, actually, Build Back Better is great, and I wouldn't mind if it were bigger, but it's the, it's the ARP stimulus checks to individuals some of whom don't don't need them. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and actually, and, and Larry has been asked that question, and that's exactly what he has said. In fact, he has said he 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 would um, he would support it even if it was bigger. So, uh, so I think that's right. And and it's the kind of stuff that is designed to fundamentally boost our potential growth, which, in other words, is meant to fundamentally move us onto a different equilibrium, which I think is what the administration is trying to do. We, I want to talk about that, and I'd like you. To, I'd like to ask you to explain 
like the different equilibrium um, and, and, and how people should understand that. Why don't we take a break right now? We'll come back um, uh, with Megan Green, John, and, uh, and Brendan. You're listening to the Macrocast. HPS affiliate Flag Media Analytics is a next-generation media monitoring firm designed to shorten the decision-making process for public affairs professionals. Our expert analysts will work with your team to ensure only the most relevant content reaches their inbox and provide custom metrics solutions for the evolving news cycle. To learn more about how Flag can get you ahead of the cycle, visit flagmediaanalytics.com. All right, back on the macrocast. Um, Megan, you've mentioned a couple times about like, you know, the, the, that you are, you know, you're a believer in like multiple equilibria and, uh, and this sort of old fashioned, you know, my, you know, my, my macro textbook from the early eighties um, when y'all were children, um, uh, you know, did talk about, you know, a, uh, you know, this, a, a single equilibrium and an output gap and, you know, lots of talk about, uh, you know, cost push inflation and things like that. And so could you, could you take, explain um, how we should think about, you know, multiple equilibria? Yeah. I, by the way, like I'm also the guy like traveled the world with John Taylor, you know, talk about, you know, Taylor rule and thinking about how, you know, estimating output gaps was like, is the key to the Taylor rule, right? Yep. That's right. Um, and I think the output gaps really come into question more recently. So, I mean, I'll start by saying I'm part of a few different initiatives that are interdisciplinary, trying to adopt lessons from other disciplines that we can use in economics. Um, and this year in particular, I've spent a lot of time talking to epidemiologists and their kind of modeling is very different from our kind of modeling in economics in, in a number of ways. Um, but in economics, our models are pretty outdated and pretty rickety and kind of held together by duct tape and chewing gum in many ways. And one of the assumptions we have in our models is that we have a single equilibrium. And basically, the, the, the role of policy is to kind of gently nudge the economy back towards this equilibrium, which if you got all the different factors out of the way the economy would just do naturally. So part of policy is to either to kind of try to buoy the economy a little bit so that it starts going on its own natural magic path back towards equilibrium um, or to push it down if the economy is overheating by, for example, hiking rates or withdrawing some kind of fiscal accommodation. So that's the role of policy. Um, and that's, that's the traditional view. The new view that we adopt from every other hard science is that actually there isn't just this one equilibrium. You can fundamentally move the economy either up onto a different path or down onto a different path. So you could argue that in the global financial crisis, um, you know, we started off with an issue in the subprime market, which was pretty small. And because we're all social creatures, there were all kinds of linkages that made that snowball into a huge crisis. And the recovery was incredibly slow off the back of it. And you could argue that we've just kind of hit a different equilibrium. So I can say, having worked in asset management for a number of years, that probably on a weekly basis, investors were telling me that 10-year yields would get back up to 4%. That was, you know, obviously just mean reversion. That's what happens if you get out of the way and let the economy recover as it was doing for over a decade. And the reality is, is we never saw that happen. Um, we never saw inflation get back up to 2% as everybody expected. 
Um, and so we could have just moved on to a lower equilibrium where those things that, you know, the economy, those numbers that the economy kind of goes above and below um, are, are different than what they used to be. And so I think that works on the upside too. That's the good news that if you can fundamentally boost your potential growth, if you can increase the productivity of your economy, you can invest in your workforce and, and upgrade your workforce, then actually you can move up to a higher equilibrium. And those kinds of mean reversions can happen at a different level. And also I would point out that there isn't just this magic number that the economy sort of cycles around. So I would also question sort of the business cycle to some degree. Yeah. In some ways, the environment that you're creating um, when you're off of that equilibrium, feed into what that equilibrium ends up being. And so it ends up being this kind of feedback cycle that can move your equilibrium as well. Every other science takes this on board, except for economics. Somehow we're still missing the boat. Do you, um, but uh, do you ever worry at that point? I mean, and, and I'm not, I don't want to have an MMT discussion because this isn't, we're not talking about MMT. Yeah. But at some point, do you ever worry about, do you worry about the debt at all? And, and, and I've been like, I, like, I don't worry about the debt. I'm, I'm proud to have been someone who like for a very, very long time, who doesn't worry about the debt, you know, for, uh, you know, the, I think I always thought that we had way too much of a fetish about it. But at some point, do you have to worry about it, um, uh, even at these rates? So, Yes. At some point you have to worry about it and there's no magic number for mm. when you have to worry about it. Um, but the US doesn't need to worry about it nearly as much as anyone else because we have the biggest, most liquid asset class in the world, the treasury market and the global reserve currency. And I think that's partly what makes it so difficult to figure out yeah. when the US needs to worry about it. I would say it's, it's, it's not for a long time. Um, we're not even close to being there yet. Um, but I, I also think the, the debt level doesn't matter as much as what you're using the money for. Um, and so I'd be really worried if we were borrowing to break windows and replace them, right? That's not productive. But if you're borrowing in order to invest in your labor force and retool and reskill workers for higher wage, higher hour jobs, that's a great use of borrowing. Um, also because it fundamentally boosts growth, it moves us up onto a different equilibrium. Um, and so, you know, that's a productive investment. Um, so I think what you use the money on matters quite a lot. And again, that comes back to this debate between Larry Olivier and the Biden administration. And then I think Larry and Olivier are really worried about just mailing checks out um, because some of that just won't be used productively. Whereas I think there's very little concern about using the money to invest in green infrastructure. Yeah, Game Boy is not, it's not. <laughs> not a productive use of borrowing. GameStop. GameStop's not productive investment. Right. Bitcoin is not a, a productive yeah. investment. But in my years at the hedge fund, one of the most enlightening revelations was when we would trade treasuries, a lot of times the biggest issue we had was actually liquidity. It was just sometimes difficult to, 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 to find treasuries to trade. That's yeah, not, I'd say there are different kinds of liquidity, though. Um, so I had the portfolio managers I worked with in asset management constantly complain about liquidity, even as the Fed was, you know, yeah. still had this hugely bloated uh, balance sheet. And so I think there's a difference between kind of funding liquidity and other kinds of liquidity. That, that means that those two things can be true. The Fed can be stepping on the gas, buying up assets to, like there's no tomorrow. And investors can have trouble getting big trades through and, and that's not contradictory. 
Yeah, it's a, you know, it's funny. I, I think back to in this moment, this time, right? Uh, just like before 9-11, um, 2001, um, I was spending a lot of time sitting with Peter Fisher, who was, you know, former FOMC, um, you know, who, you know, was directed FOMC operations, uh, was now under secretary for domestic finance at Treasury, and where, you know, internally in the building, you know, uh, Peter introduced the uh, idea that we were, um, that we were going to uh, eliminate the 30-year the bond mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we were running surpluses at the time, right? But we have this, this, this great discussion about um, whether it would be necessary to maintain issuance in order to maintain the depth and liquidity of these markets, right? Because the, you know, the, the, the having, you know, deep, rich, liquid treasury markets is itself an asset for the entire economy. And if we keep, you know, if we keep running surpluses and rolling off debt, like those markets just shrink and that's not such a great thing. So what would you do in that case? What would Congress let us do in that case? We're obviously very far from that, but I think it's safe to say though, that there were, there were actually periods of time where those markets were not as deep as we actually would have liked them to be, which seems crazy, right? But they were not as deep as what the world was demanding uh, or, or desired them to be because it was such a high premium uh, to, uh, to be in those markets. Yeah, I, I'll also say I've actually asked Janet Yellen about this when she was at the Fed, you know, because my portfolio managers did nothing but complain about how they couldn't find liquidity um, to get trades, particularly in fixed income. And so I asked her, is the Fed worried about this? And um, her response was, and I'm completely paraphrasing, so don't quote this, but it was like, that's not a, a bug, that's a feature. <laughs> we, we like that investors can't shove through huge trades and cause all kinds of volatility in the markets. And so that, that wasn't something the Fed felt like they really needed to fix. Yeah, I don't think, I, don't think I, don't, I, I could see where, that, where the Fed would be right there on that, yeah. Yep. Um, in terms of treasury supply, obviously, you know, the Biden administration is they have a pretty traditional approach to the pay fors at least so far you know the uh, the american this is not an mmt administration we've seen that the american jobs act came accompanied with corporate tax increases and the headlines yesterday were about uh, the american families act coming with heightened uh, capital gains tax for uh, high earners and this 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 concept of pay fors we've talked about on this show before that you know there's is it, is it really directly paying for it? There's obviously a redistribution and an, an equality agenda um, with the Biden uh, administration's tax policy. So I just wanted to, there, there's, there's a lot obviously to unpack there, but I wanted to, uh, to, to shift gears and talk about the tax side of things, Megan. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're right to highlight the inequality piece of it. And that's not just because I'm writing a book on inequality. So I'm obviously interested in this. But if you look at who the Biden administration, what economists they hired first, they were all labor economists, domestic labor economists, um, which I think says quite a lot. Um, And redistribution is an obvious way to address income and wealth inequality in the U.S. And so Um, I I think that the administration would be missing a trick not to look at this. I mean, if you look at um, the average tax rate that different tranches of U.S. society are paying back in the 1950s, we used to have a very progressive tax system. Now, pretty much every tranche is paying somewhere between 20, 
28% um, in taxes. So it's, it's not progressive at all. And if you compare us with other advanced economies, the US looks pretty unfavorable on that level as well. So I think that it's right for the Biden administration to try to push some of this through. I'm not sure that they'll be able to, whether they can legislate it is another question, but I think the thinking behind it is right. Even if you don't care about inequality because you're a nice person and inequality is bad, fundamentally inequality is a drag on the economy. So you can just argue that a progressive tax system is a way of boosting demand and growth um, and addressing kind of the, the global savings glut that has kept us with low growth, low inflation and low rates for so long. So there, there's a real economic argument for doing this beyond just you know having kindness in your heart that I think the Biden administration is underscoring too. Does it bug you that, that and it's not just the Biden administration, right? It actually, it actually just like it, it, it hears, like I'm hearing echoes from like past debates on, on a lot of this stuff. And like the things that you said are exactly the things I, I hear myself say a lot, which is that if we're gonna borrow at something like zero for productive, uh, for things that are gonna elevate productivity over the long run, like we're, we're idiots not to do it. We should do those things. Uh, they're, you know, they're really, they're really good reasons to do it. I get, I get, I get frustrated by uh, the the um, the argument that that we could that we should only do those things if we can, in as much as we can get political um, support to pay for them. Mm-hmm. And because I'm frustrated by the idea that I have to pay to go do really good things when I'm borrowing at zero, and but it's not just that, uh, you know, like, I mean, like your point on, you know, using it to redistribute, to, to eliminate a drag in the economy that inequality, you know, that you, what, what, your, what your research is saying, like that's a drag, right? Mm-hmm. To eliminate. So that's a, that's, a, that's a different point and a different argument than this argument that it must be paid for. But it's also built into the models that, you know, CBO and like my really good, great friend, you know, Phil Swagel is like running. It's like, it's a very traditional CBO understanding of debt. The debt is going to be a drag and subtract from growth going forward. And, and okay. so, you know, but so it's, it's baked into the debate of how do we go do a big thing for the economy? And I think it's frustrating. Yeah, so I'd say it's always been baked into the debate, but actually that started changing about a year ago when economists started saying, okay, as economists, we're always taught to compare things in like terms, right? So you should look at stocks to stocks or flows to flows. That's the only way to do it. And then uh, actually my colleagues, Jason Furman and Larry Summers pointed out, well, we look at debt to GDP, That is a stock to a flow. Why do we do that? That doesn't make any sense. We never would have learned that based on traditional economics. Um, What we should do is look at stock to stock or flow to flow. And so if you look at it in flow to flow terms, then you're looking at borrowing costs to GDP. And because rates are so incredibly low, borrowing costs are incredibly low. Um, and, And you can show how much borrowing costs to GDP have come down since the last crisis, right? So while, you know, it was a concern that borrowing costs were still pretty high relative to GDP, after the global financial crisis, that's not a worry anymore. So we should just borrow and and use that money productively. So I will say that there has been a lot of movement in traditional economics and academia, certainly away from this stock to flow comparison that we've always made without anyone really questioning it and towards, you know, comparing things in like terms as we always should have. So I, I do think there's less concern 
about our debt and borrowing costs, even if the CBO hasn't quite gotten on board yet. Out here, yeah. But I, yeah. Think, I think you'll see that as a feature of the debate on the Hill. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. so I think it, it's very much a part of the debate. Yep. Let's take, a, let's take another break and we'll come back. Um, you're listening to the Macrocast. Check out HPS Insights, a regular podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, bringing you the latest on policy debates affecting the business and political communities. Available on the HPS podcast channel on your favorite streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Google. Tune in to the latest episodes and learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. All right, we're back on the Macrocast. Um, Tony Prado at Hamilton Place Strategies, John Fagan and Brendan Walsh uh, with Marcus Policy Partners and economist Megan Green. Um, just uh, guys, looking forward to next week. What kind of data do we have? Uh, do we have for ourselves? I, I want to say, but I, I do want to mark a good piece of data that we saw this week was uh, on, you know, claims. Um, you know, again, inching lower again, which was a which, which was a nice uh, signal. Uh, I want to see more of that. What else are you guys paying attention to? Uh, so next week, we actually get our first estimates at first quarter GDP, uh, both here and in Europe. Um, I believe it's about uh, 7% is what uh, kind of, the, I, I guess the Atlanta GDP is tracking, and that's what kind of economists are. Um, and then probably the, the main event of the week, though, will be the personal uh, consumption and expenditures. So we get PC uh, uh, expenditures and income, but within that report, we get the, the Fed's preferred inflation measurement, the PCE price index. Uh, and we've been talking about <laughs> inflation all podcasts, so obviously that's an important one. <laughs> yeah, and the day before is the Fed meeting, and uh, they're, they're not expected really to do very much. It's, uh, it's, it's anticipated that this is kind of a steady maintenance dose <laughs> of dovishness rather than, uh, rather than a phase shift. But you know, with we saw the Bank of Canada taper their quantitative easing program. Uh, we saw the Reserve Bank of New Zealand do the same thing. There is clearly a uh, a question mark around their guidance on taper, which is a little well, let's say a lot squishier than their guidance on rates. Yeah. And uh, you know, substantial further uh, progress toward their policy goals, which is going to be some time from the last, uh, you know, from when they've to some time is, is that 4th of July or is it next 4th of July? Right. Uh, could be either. And, uh, and this is the kind of, uh, this is the kind of ambiguity that right now the market's okay with. Uh, but as we get further into the summer, the questions are going to compound and uh, the, the communications challenge will, will definitely arise. Yeah. Can I just jump in there on their communications challenge? Cause I think you're right. This, this, Fed meeting will be a nothing burger. Um, they're not even going to talk about talking about uh, withdrawing accommodation. But the Fed has been really clear that they're going to signpost this really clearly and give us all a huge heads up. And I think everybody sort of believes that that means that this can all go really smoothly. But the second the Fed signals that they're going to taper purchases, that is a binary change. Um, and totally so I, it happened yeah, I don't see how we... Yeah avoid a taper tantrum. I just don't see yeah. how telling us early that there is this binary change right. really makes that much of a difference. So you might as well start it the minute that you say it. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, I mean, that's not coming next week, but that's certainly coming up down the line. Yeah. I, I feel bad for the reporters at, 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 at these kinds of um, uh, FOMC meetings. The last few ones actually also, um, and the 
and I think the next couple as well, that because there, there aren't that many questions left to ask that haven't been answered. Yeah. I, and also, this is so different because usually communications is a, is a very powerful tool that they have when they're setting rates. You can tell the market, and then by the time you finally raise rates, it's already priced, uh, priced in, so it's not a big deal. The balance sheet is the exact opposite. You, <laughs> it's yes or no. Yeah, so if I were a reporter stuck at one of these meetings asking the Fed questions, I, I would actually combine an event from this week, which was Earth Day, yeah. um, with what the Fed's doing, and I would ask kind of about the Fed's position on helping address climate change, which is, you know, arguably the biggest existential crisis that we currently face. And the, the Fed has engaged in helping out in the face of an existential crisis that funded our World War II effort, for example. So what role can they play here? That's something I'd want to ask them about. They have for sure. And it is, um, and, uh, and, and they have, and they, and they should, and other central banks are uh, are as well. I think they're trying to be very, very careful about it because the politics of it are still fraught for them. Um, and um, you know, it looks more like you know, like their concern is it looks more like policy uh, than um, than uh, because the, the, there is you know Republicans on the Hill, uh, you know don't don't see it as the existential threat uh at least not the threat that the fed you know ought to be taking the lead on so um i think they're trying to manage it as as well as they can but they definitely need to be careful yeah there's a slippery slope argument right they might be okay with uh, intervening in terms of climate change but what if they're asked to build a wall for example so i mean i think there is concern among fed officials about their independence when it comes to this one but i also think this you know the bank of england has made climate change officially part of their mandate the ecb's um, already buying up tons of green bonds. So I do think there's a question. The Fed's actually joined this club for central banks that are interested in climate change. I can't remember what the official acronym is, but that's the NGFS, I think, the Network for Greening the Financial System. That's it. Um, and they've set up a supervisory climate change group. So there's a supervision aspect that all central banks, I think, are comfortable with getting involved in because we should be stress testing our banks for things like stranded assets. But when it comes to, you know, monetary policy addressing climate change, the, the Fed's pretty behind the eight ball relative to other central banks. So I'd want to ask them what they're doing about it. That would be a good provocative question. And maybe someone will be asked. Hey, uh, Megan, thanks for joining us. It's been such a joy to have you here today. And I hope definitely what I would really love to do is have you back um, to talk about your book and, uh, and in your research, even before you get to the book. I'd love to, love to talk about your research on inequality because it is so incredibly important um, uh, as a political and economic um, matter. And so, um, uh, so we'd love to have you back and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, count me in. Sounds great. Great to see you guys. Okay. John, Brandon, uh, have a great weekend. We'll catch you next week on the Macrocast. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.